Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Um, before you go, you had, you had alluded to the, the distinction between what's happened with the price of gold and Bitcoin. And, and you said that you think it's moving towards Bitcoin. Is that a, a long-term trend? Does that mean you're a, a Bitcoin bull, I asked, because we had talked to Jamie Dimon earlier this week, who, despite JP Morgan supporting crypto in a very big way, and actually Bitcoin to some degree, uh, on Bitcoin itself, he seemed to think it's still very possible if it ever really reaches escape velocity, and maybe it's getting closer as it, it, it passes $18,000 uh, per Bitcoin, that the government actually would try to regulate it. So, Andrew, I mean, I, I think, listen, I think cryptocurrency is here to stay, and I think it is a durable, and you've seen the central banks that have talked about digital currencies. I think digital currency and the receptivity, particularly millennials' receptivity of, uh, of technology and cryptocurrency is real. Digital payment systems is real. So I think Bitcoin is here to stay. I think, you know, do, am, I a, am I a Bitcoin bull? I mean, I don't do a lot of it or virtually any of it in my portfolios, my, my, uh, my corporate portfolios, my business portfolios. But do I think it is probably, I, you know, it's hard to say, is it worth the price it's trading at today? But do I think it's a durable mechanism that, that you know, do I think will take the place of gold to a large extent? Yeah, I do, because it's so much more functional than, than passing a bar of gold around. Rick Reeder, everybody. That's the BlackRock CIO of Global Fixed Income. Why do I mention it? Well, because BlackRock is uh, the largest private financial institution on the face of the planet. It's probably arguable. Uh, not central banks, I said completely private. And yes, I know that the Federal Reserve is private and most central banks actually are, but they don't, they act differently than that. This is flat out, nobody can mistake the fact that this is a private company. And BlackRock has $7.4 trillion of assets under management, which makes them pretty much the biggest player on the face of this planet. And we have the CIO of Global Fixed Income saying that the play is probably going to move towards uh, towards Bitcoin. So <laughs> take that, take that however it is that you want to take that. Now, someone's in a really big pickle. Oh, oh, I guess I should go ahead and mention today is the 23rd of November 2020. This is the week of Thanksgiving, and I'm going to try to bring you uh, at least three interviews this week. Um, I'm sitting on some, and I don't want them to get too damn stale. And it's Thanksgiving, you know, so I'm I'm all, I'm really thankful for the guests that have uh, given over their time to come on the show. And I kind of want to thank them. And I'm going to put all as many of the uh, interviews that I got stacked up and record at least one more and then spend them out all this week for Thanksgiving week because I'm not going to do a, a show on Thursday because that's Thanksgiving Day. And I, you know, hey, whatever. Anyway, so this is episode number 327 of Bitcoin and Chris Tremount from Scarce.City. You can also pronounce it scarcity. That actually makes <clears throat> makes a lot of sense. Um, 
So he's going to join us here in a second. But first of all, we need to talk about this pickle situation. DeFi, yes, another DeFi protocol. This time it's pickle. Finance was hacked for $20 million. Everything was drained out of their C-Die jar. The coffers of Pickle Finance, a decentralized finance protocol with a native token that looks suspiciously like Pickle Rick of Rick and Morty fame, were drained today of $20 million in what appears to be a hack. Pickle Finance shifts investors' money around different DeFi protocols to maximize returns, bitches. A little like a traditional robo-advisor. Yesterday, Pickle deployed a new strategy to maximize returns <clears throat> from DAI, a centralized stablecoin pegged to the U.S. dollar. Quote, Larry the Cucumber, <laughs> a team member for Pickle, posted in a Discord chat according to statelayer.eth. <clears throat> and here's what it says. It's got a, a screen cap from Larry the Cucumber. We deployed a new strategy yesterday. I'm hoping the funds just went there, but I can't really tell from the looks of it. We need OX Penguin to speak to this. So you deployed money to a wallet and you can't, you can't tell if it got there. Already you're in trouble, man. Sorry, I'm just saying. But today somebody drained $19.7 million of die from that wallet. Specifically, someone drained Pickles Finance's CDI jar. CDI are the tokens that decentralized lending protocol compound issued Pickle when it deposited the die but it doesn't appear to be the kind of flash loan attack that have plagued DeFi protocols for the past few months. <clears throat> Several DeFi protocols um, have been the victims of flash loan-based Oracle attacks, Harvest Finance, Cheese Bank, uh, Acropolis, Value DeFi, that kind of thing. You know, I've talked about it on several occasions. But following the hack, the p uh, price of Pickle Finance's token Pickle fell by 43% to $12.75. Until it works out what's going on, Harvest Finance, a rival DeFi protocol that last month was hacked for $30 million, has moved all of its DAI, as well as stablecoin USDC, to the safety of its vaults until the attack vector is understood, tweeted, Smokatoke, a community rep for Harvest Finance. Smokatoke. Don't try. These people are going, to, are going to screw you out of all of your money. Now, this one is going to be the last little bit of news. <clears throat> U.S. firm launched launches company-sponsored Bitcoin retirement plans. This is Amkar Godbull writing for Coindesk.com. Uh, <clears throat> after running a year-long test, Digital Asset Investment Management, a U.S.-based crypto investment advisor, has launched what it says are the first company-sponsored retirement plans supporting Bitcoin. Uh, DAIM will serve as an advisor and fiduciary while helping companies create a 401k plan that allows a maximum allocation of up to 10% in Bitcoin alongside varying degrees of exposure to traditional assets. So we now have one of the very first people coming up to say we need a 401k that gives uh, companies the ability to give their retirees or their, you know, their employees when they retire direct exposure to Bitcoin. Couldn't come soon enough. Uh, we need to get this shit rolling. We really do. Now, on to the interview with Chris Tremount from Scarce.City. Chris, welcome to Bitcoin And. How you doing today, man? David, doing well, man. It's good to be here. What is your last name? Unless you don't want to say it. Oh, no, I'm fully doxxed already. Uh, Chris Tremount. Okay. How do you spell that anyway? Uh, T-R-A-M-O-U-N-T. 
Okay. Just wanted to make sure because I have this tendency. I have not only do I mispronounce people's names, I also misspell them often. I'm a terrible speller anyway. <laughs> so yeah, uh, you, so you are the founder, I am guessing of this new thing called a scarcity. Is that correct? That's right. One of two founders. I have a uh, technical co-founder, Aryan Jabari. Okay. All right. So um, before we get into scarcity, let's let's set some tone and get some context of who you are and kind of where you come from. So take yourself back to high school. What did you want to do when you grew up? Oh, man, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it's funny. Like, I think back about on it and I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, and, um, you know, I just wasn't exposed to a lot of like the really interesting careers uh, at that time. Um, so, you know, for me, like I was good at math. So I was like, you know, I guess I'll just be an engineer because that's what math people did as far as my environment goes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, of course, there was like the business route, but I was like, I, I don't really see myself as a business type of guy, at least the way I, I thought of it then, which was like, you know, in Charleston, it was like the bankers, right? Right. Uh, so, um, you know, I had no, no concept of you know, tech startups, not that anyone really did back then, or anything like, you know, related to technology. Um, I will say that I did go through, um, I did go through a small phase where I wanted to be a fashion designer, nice. uh, which, which has like, become almost relevant now. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we, we will, we will see that a little bit later on in the interview. That's awesome though, man. Not many people yeah. want to do that. I no, have this no, weird thing weird about thing. high. I just got this weird thing about high fashion when I'm looking at like, you know, I don't know, Dior, re, you know, releases the spring line or whatever. And I'm looking at the, the models on the cat on the catwalk and I'm looking at the stuff going, nobody's going to wear that. I don't understand. <laughs> Yeah, no, and to be fair, like I was always interested more in like the streetwear stuff, none of the like, you know, high end. Gotcha, gotcha. So fashion designer, nice. So okay, so you're you're, you're bumping along in high school, thinking about either fashion or possibly engineering, and whoa, where did you run up against? You know, when did you run into Bitcoin, or did it run over you? Some people have that. Oh man, you know. I think I first heard about it back in 2012, 2013, uh, totally wrote it off from the beginning. Um, and it's, you know, it's, everybody has a similar story, but it's always kind of embarrassing. Um, yep. and for me, like I'm, I'm most embarrassed because like I understood the supply cap and that's why I wrote it off because I had this, you know, idea that a deflationary currency will never be used, right? People are disincentivized mm -hmm. from spending it. Uh, so it'll just, you know, it'll, it'll never work. And I just, I didn't have the, the understanding of the different functions of money. Uh, it didn't occur to me that, you know, money could be a pure store of value or, you know, um, unit of account. I, I just wasn't thinking like that. And of course, I just, I, I never gave Bitcoin my full attention to really understand it. Right. Uh, up until, you know, I came in, the flip switch for me in 2017. Uh, so, you know, still consider my, myself a, a freshman in the space. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, I think what really did it for me was I came to the realization that, you know, the Fed was just never going to stop printing. Uh, 
And I started thinking about, you know, where's the money going to go? Like only so much can go into gold. Uh, like, and you know, it's, it's just a rock. Like there's only so much we can do with that. So there's gotta be another place for it to go. And that's when I gave Bitcoin a second look. Uh, I had also been really into just studying technology and software at that time and had seen the progression play out over and over where, you know, you see some initial technology, it looks really clunky. Uh, it's really hard to use, but then sure enough, over time, it gets better and better. And all of a sudden it becomes somewhat ubiquitous. Uh, so kind of being trained through that lens and yeah. looking, looking into the future of how, uh, current systems were going to play out, uh, I, I finally wisened up to what was going on. Well, you know, to be fair, none of us were taught what money was. I mean, you know, even back in, in my high school days, which was quite a while ago, you know, it, it, it was, it was almost as if it was a theme. You go to economics class and you do other homework or you snooze or you just space, you know, space totally out. And, I start like hell. I mean, you could even watch movies where they had like, you know, there's a, a Ferris Bueller's day off. One of the most famous scenes in that movie is the snooze fest in economics class, because it was just this <laughs> droning on of this guy who actually the actor that did that was a speechwriter for Nixon. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I always, I always found that like just really, really odd, but um, you know, it's almost as if it was almost as if it was on purpose because none of us know what money is. So you, you know, yeah. you certainly can't be blamed, man. <laughs> right. No, that was the assumption is like, okay, we have money. Don't question that. And now right. we'll tell you everything, how it works, like everything to do, everything you can do with that money. But like, we're not going to talk about what's really at the foundation of this thing. Yeah. And I think a lot of us start, you know, when, when we got into Bitcoin, the very first, you know, one of the very first things that we started doing was started asking ourselves questions about, the one thing that we always took for granted and that everybody knew about, and that was money. And then once that door opened, it was like, you just start seeing just how messed up everything else is because half of all transactions in human existence is value transfer yeah, with money. Absolutely. You know, it's, so yeah. So, okay. So now you're, you're, you're firmly kind of planted into Bitcoin. You're, you're, you're chugging along. You've been slapped in the face a couple of times. You get in at 20, you know, 2017 starts really freaking out about the bull run and then scarcity happens. Where, oh, yeah. where did that, where did that come from? Uh, well, there was like a whole bear market in between there, which of course. is hard, hard to just brush over. But uh, yeah, you know, it, it, um, I, I think um, my path is not too dissimilar from many Bitcoiners where you get into Bitcoin, it just takes up all of your attention God, and it's, it becomes hard to focus on anything else. Uh -huh. And uh, I realize as I'm like in my regular job that I just can't. I can't focus on anything that's not related to Bitcoin. And I'm, like, as a professional, I'm just not going to be using uh, this, my skills to the best of my ability or my time the best that I can if I'm not doing something related to Bitcoin. Uh, so I was looking for a way into the space. And you know, my background before then, a lot of it had been centered around retail e-commerce. 
So it's, it's an area that I have a decent understanding for. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was in touch with a, a Bitcoin artist and we were just chatting and they wanted to sell some clothing that fit with some of the properties of Bitcoin, such as verifiable authenticity and supply. Mm -hmm. uh, and just kind of like, you know, being a total pleb at the time, I, I assumed that was a solved problem. Yeah. And it's only after looking into it some more that I realized that's actually a pretty hard problem. Yep. and uh, far from solved. So I started looking into it and, you know, we came up with uh, a rudimentary solution that we tested out with some face mask sales. And, um, and you know, from there, we've been able to build a little bit of a community and uh, that's helped us come up with, I think, some better ideas. Yep. And uh, it's kind of brought us to where we are right now. You know, we've just been testing a few things out. And we have some big ideas for the future. So how long has this baby of yours been crying? I mean, when did you, you know, when was opening day, so to speak? Uh, you know, opening day was, I think, in March. Actually, so no, it probably wasn't because we, we started building in March. I, my co-founder, uh, he and I were working together at the same startup before we got laid off with COVID. Uh, and uh, I, I kind of talked him into trying this out with me. So I think we were building for maybe two-ish months before we launched anything. So it was probably yeah. May. It was probably May. Uh, late May, I think. Uh, but, you know, the idea had been cooking for at least six months before then. Okay. So now, now that we've talked about your, you know, the, the birthing of that which is scarcity, it's time for us to talk about what scarcity is. So can't let, let's start out with a nutshell description, like your five minute elevator pitch. What, what is scarcity? Sure. So you know, I'll start out with the, the 20 second elevator pitches. Okay. Uh, scarcity, scarcity is a marketplace that uses Bitcoin lightning, uh, hopefully future layer three protocols to support Bitcoin culture and adoption. Okay. All right. So, now, um, this is based, seems to be based around the Lightning Network and Lightning Auctions. And I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, your uh, scarcity you know, or scarce.city website right now. And this seems to be, you know, what I'm seeing is like, hey, look, you know, I read your white paper. So it looks like, you know, it's like, a, hey, look, I'm going to sell you this T-shirt and we're going to take a Lightning payment for it. But there's much more to it than that because a it's auctions it involves the lightning network and third parties shipping and stuff so what's let's start with a lightning auction so you got you know you got some artists they want to sell t-shirts they come to you and say i want to sell my shirt at, at auction how let's kind of dive in or put our toes in the water right around there. Can you kind of start detailing this out a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the clothing we did in the past, that wasn't auction based. That was just okay. a fixed, fixed price. And because we did have a mechanism for uh, verifiable supply, we were like increasing supply with each item sold and doing some cool stuff there. Uh, but our newest, what I would call product is lightning auctions. And we're going to be focused on, original art and specifically Bitcoin art, uh, at least in the beginning here. Okay. Uh, and you know, we're still a few weeks away from putting this out into the wild, but, um, 
Now we have it in our test notes working great. The idea here is that we're using, we're running auctions uh, that use lightning payments to keep bidders accountable for their bids uh, while requiring minimal fees and minimal personal information from bidders. So okay. the, the way this works step-by-step step is, you know, we're trying to keep this as simple and clean cut as possible. You go into the auction site, you check out the product, you check out the bids that have already been placed. You see how much time is left on the auction. You decide you want to place a bid. You input your bid amount and put it into sats. You know, we're keeping that as the standard, but we do the auto calculation for you to US dollars. Uh, and you put in an email address and, you know, we really don't want people to be putting in their like personal email address. It can be right. any email address. We just need it to uh, verify that the winning bidder placed, you know, the winning bid uh, and also to refund your collateral back to you. Uh, and if it's your first time placing a bid with that email address, you input a display name which you only input once when you make subsequent bids with that email address that auto populates. And once you submit that information, you're, you're brought to uh, pay a lightning invoice, which can range anywhere from five to, you know, on the very high end, $50, uh, mm-hmm. which is a percentage. It's a, it's a small percentage of the amount you actually bid, uh, and it acts as your collateral for that bid. So okay. at the end of the auction, once it's all said and done, everybody gets their collateral back, except in the case where the auction winner does not pay the amount they said they would pay. And in that case, they lose their collateral. Okay. And the, the next highest bidder would be become the winner of the auction. Okay. So I've got, like, let's say that I've got, I don't know, I've got something like a piece of Bitcoin, Bitcoin art. I put it up for auction and I get notified that somebody has bid on it. And then I continuously get notifications that somebody's bid higher, bid higher until time runs out. And the, the winning bidder uh, does one of two things, pays all of the rest aside from the collateral that he already put up. Like, I think what, yeah. what did, did you say it was like 5% of the total price? We're still playing with the percentages, but on, okay. at, at a very minimum, it would be five dollars. Okay. If it's a very expensive bid, uh, we're willing to push it up to like fifty dollars, but that's about as high as we want to go. Okay, yeah, I, I, I get it. So now, if the now does the bidder, the winning bidder that chooses to pay and be honorable and all that, do they go ahead and complete with another lightning transaction? Or at one point or another, did they have to break away and go to the main chain and do a full Bitcoin main chain transaction? Yeah, so the items we're going to be auctioning off here, we expect to be in the hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in in total value. So these would be on-chain transactions once you're actually paying the full amount. So at that point, only the Lightning Network is only leveraged to make sure that people play fair, right? That's exactly right. Okay. That's, I just want to, I just want to make sure that, that I'm clear on that because I, sometimes I'm not clear with myself on on certain things. Um, so now are you, so are you guys running your own lightning node to do this or are you leveraging someone else? 
we are using BTC Pay Server, which makes it easy for us. But yes, we are running our own node. Now, is have you guys done a you know any kind of simulation as to let, let's say this thing just really takes off and you've got multiple auctions going on? I'm talking like let's say let's pie in the sky. Let's say you've got like 100 auctions that are live at the exact same time. Have you guys simulated at what point you might need to actually start you know either leveraging uh, an outside source? Somebody's like you know the, I can't remember who it was uh, just announced that was it. Oh, I almost, I almost had the name, but they're uh, spinning up lightning no, lightning nodes in the cloud that you can rent. Uh, have you figured out well, at voltage. what point? Yeah, that's it. Thank, thank you. Yeah, they're fantastic. Yeah. Um, it, would there be a point at which uh, you know running it, you know, shake and bake on your desktop is just not going to cut it anymore? Do you know when that point is, or if that point even exists? Um, you know. <laughs> It's not a near-term problem for us, so, so I should right. clarify that we are taking a curated approach to this. Okay. So it's not going to be like self-serve. Anybody can start an auction, at least not anytime soon. Like okay. We want to uh, very carefully control what is being put up for auction, and it's not just us. We have a community that helps us make these decisions. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we're going to be taking this baby steps from the beginning. Uh, it would be fantastic if in like sometime within the next few months, we get to one auction a week. But you know, part of this is we want to get as much attention around each individual auction as possible. Okay. Uh, so there is a certain limitation there. And, you know, as far as like growing the business, we think there's like interesting ways to bundle other sales from most likely the same artist into uh -huh. the auction. Right. Now I'm looking at this and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I used to run uh, a guy's, uh, I was helping a, a buddy of mine out at his business a couple of different times. And he actually had, he was, he was modifying dish network units and then reselling them on eBay, mostly to Canada. And I won't get into the parameters of the modification because, you know, it's probably not a good thing to talk about, but, um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, but we moved into, you know, auctioning all kinds of solid goods. I mean, things that, that are, you know, fairly meaty. Is this going to like, is, I know that I would imagine that your answer in the near term is it's just going to be art, but do you have any further thoughts of like, like I got, I got a Fender twin amplifier. I don't really use it anymore. And I'd like to be able to auction that off. Is that something that you might do in the future? Go past close, you know, light, um, you know, lightweight shippable goods uh, to where we get into some some heavier items, or is that just like, nope, we're not even going to touch it? Oh, I certainly wouldn't shut it down completely. Uh, I will say, like, you know, our mission that we do want to stay as true as possible to is like everything we do, we want it to be for Bitcoin adoption and culture. Right. Uh, so if we find that there's a demand for something that aligns with that mission, we're totally open to it. Uh, yeah. Now. Oh, go sorry, ahead. I was just going to say, um, yeah, you know, but the demand portion is really important, right? Like, and what is important to us is that all of our transactions are in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly at this point in time, they're, they're, are only a few types of transactions that really make sense to be made in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
where we're seeing that is in you know, Bitcoin collectibles, Bitcoin art. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating to go into the Bitcoin talk forums and see uh, auctions for some of these Bitcoin collectibles being done in like, you know, a very rudimentary uh, web 1.0 forum. And it's because right. the people in these forums, like they are purists, like they only want to sell and buy with Bitcoin when it comes to Bitcoin collectibles. Right. So to us, that's the you know, first sweet spot that we want to go after. Uh, I think over time, the types of transactions happening over Bitcoin will expand uh, and you know, those will become addressable for us. Uh, but we want to make sure that that, you know, the the desire to transact in Bitcoin is already there before we move into that. So I'm assuming that you guys are reaching out to some of the you know more well known artists uh, directly and saying, "Hey, we got this thing. Will you kind of you know help help us out? Like you know, consider you know putting some stuff up, like Lucio Paletti and some of those guys." Yeah, we have uh, we have an all star cast of uh, Bitcoin artists. Uh, in our Telegram group, you know, we're battle testing all of our ideas and and uh, prototypes against them. They've been hugely helpful in just helping us understand what's important to them. Uh, and uh, yeah, we have a process for admitting new members. You know, everybody votes on it. Uh, I my vote is worth the same amount as any other person in the group. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, you know, we wouldn't have a chance without having the acceptance of the Bitcoin artist community and they've just been hugely helpful already. Okay. So, um, let's see, let's take it. Oh, just marking stuff off my list here. Shipping and delivery. Uh, the white paper mentioned something about integrating with tracking the package. Um, is it, did I read that wrong or is that indeed what you guys are doing? Um, so the white paper probably could use an update. Uh, it, okay. We're kind of, we're, we're really focused on the auctions now and depending on how that goes, uh, you'll probably see a pretty significant update to the white paper. Okay. But the way we, the way we are structuring the auctions is we act as an escrow service. Uh, so when the auction is complete, the winner of the auction, they pay us. And then we work with the artist to make sure that the artist is packed securely, uh, and once it's put into the mail and, and uh, you know, sent to the auction winner, uh, we receive tracking for that, and that's kind of our verification that you know the artist has done their point, their part at that point, right. and we pay them. Now, of course, there's still plenty of risk in the process from there of of the art getting from point A to point B, uh, and that's where we offer insurance service. And because we are working with the artist to make sure that artist the art is packed securely, we're comfortable taking that risk. Of course, we are getting compensated for it. Uh, but the point here is we want to give the buyer as much security as possible that you know they're not at risk of the item being damaged or lost in transit. Right. Uh, do you guys leverage like the postal service uh, insurance stuff, like where? 
you know, you get the artist to say, Hey, you know, this thing costs this, uh, with a tracking number, we need, you know, it'd be nice to have proof of insurance that in case it does get lost, that there's some kind of recompensation. Uh, do y'all do any, anything like that? It's, it's the same basic idea. Uh, but oh, okay. we're just, we're taking it on ourselves. Okay. Cause we used to do that. Well, that was mandatory when we were shipping stuff uh, around the United States, everything was insured that way. Worst case scenario, we could ping the post office or, you know, whoever was doing our shipping that offered insurance. We all, I think we only shipped with uh, USPS for that reason, because they were the only ones that had a good insurance thing. But um, so, so the, the, let's say that, you know, it's not, it's not a digital piece of art. It's a physical piece of art. Uh, auction has been won. The guy has acted, you know, in, in an ethical manner has gone ahead and paid the, the full price for winning the auction. Now it's up to the artist to ship that thing and pack it well. And then you guys are taking on that, you know, the meat space risk. So when the package actually arrives to the person, the, the winning bidder, does the winning bidder, is it, do they, you know, have a, a obligation to contact you and say, yes, it, it arrived. Here's a, you know, screenshot of it, or yes, it arrived, but it's damaged. And here's where the damage is. Is that how you would assess that, you know, that those kind of issues on their end? Yeah, it'd be more of like, we don't need to know anything unless something went wrong. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, and and uh, of course we would need uh, proof of that in some form. And it's a, it's a great question uh, and something that we're thinking through really closely right now and, and the best way to do that. Um, but if, if everything goes well, we don't need to hear from the buyer from then. Okay. Okay. That, well, that, that does, that actually does make sense. Uh, we would, we would never hear from our customers unless there was, you know, something wrong either, but, um, yeah, okay. that, that whole thing with, you know, the, the, the interconnection between, you know, Bitcoin lightning network, you know, all this stuff and meat spaces, I think is much trickier than we're giving it credit for. And, you know, as the problems continuously pop up, you know, it'll be like whack-a-mole and we'll, you know, eventually we'll just crush them when they come down. But, you know, I, the minute that that, that edge between your Bitcoin and, and actual space is just, I think there's a whole lot of growth potential in, in figuring out how to solve logistical problems there. And I don't see anybody actually doing it. I mean, you guys are, you know, are there at the edge because you have to do stuff in meat space, but I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for Bitcoiners to go, you know, there's, there's a, you know, million problems here that could be solved and here's the solution. So, um, yeah, we're thinking along the same lines, you know, the, yeah. uh, the challenge in solving the problem is our opportunity. So when, um, when is, are you guys going to, I think you guys, you're, you're saying that you're pretty much in the, still in the testing phase. Is there a beta coming up that people can look forward to? Is there some way for, you know, the listeners to take part of this? Yeah, we're, uh, I want to say two to three weeks out from launching our first lightning auction. Okay. And we have, uh, we have a, a, a very special uh, work of uh, fine Bitcoin art that's uh, just finishing up production. Uh, we're still kind of keeping that close to the vest, but there will be a big announcement once it's ready to show. Okay. We, uh, do me a favor, you know, let me help out, uh, when that, when you're about ready to release, if you'll 
ping me on that, um, on that tweet or whatever social media that you're, you know, all that stuff. Um, I'll help, you know, relay that message because I know it's, you know, it's, it's hard to get traction in, in a space that's filled with so much noise. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. I appreciate that. I'll definitely keep that in mind. Thank you. Okay. So now we're going to shift gears. Uh, there's some things that, that you wanted to talk about. Um, and one of the first ones, because we're, we have been talking about art, and sometimes they're in meat space, but often we're seeing this stuff, the, the, these non-fungible token art, um, and it's coming, it's been kind of coming to Bitcoin more and more and more. Uh, and you wanted to say how it's creating a new renaissance. I'm really interested in pulling those thoughts out of your head. Yeah. So I figured if we're going to talk for an hour, I have to have one point where I try to stir the pot up, and up a little bit and uh, say something controversial. Um, oh no! But, but you know, when I first heard of NFT art, I thought it was totally crazy. Uh, but I felt a responsibility to do some due diligence here. Like we're at least in a tangential space. I need to understand what this thing's all about. So, got into it, uh, bought a piece of uh, NFT art. Um, and, you know, certainly has many pitfalls, which I'm happy to go into. Uh, but the one thing that I realized really quickly is that the, the community of artists and collectors are just so unbelievably enthusiastic. And you know, I've learned the hard way to uh, not discount something that looks silly with a really uh, enthusiastic community. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, it's gotten it, it's. What's been proven for sure is that there's demand from real collectors for this type of art. And what that has incentivized is their creation of just incredible works of art. And now they are purely digital, but because yeah. they are digital, they're able to create entirely new experiences that just aren't, aren't possible in the real world. Right. And yeah, in my mind, the flywheel has already kind of taken shape uh, where the art is getting better, which is going to attract different types of collectors. And at the same time, you know, one of the biggest knocks on this thing is you know, I can just copy and paste this and view it in my phone and browser just the same. But you have this whole infrastructure layer that's being built around it because there is real demand here. And there's going to be new ways to interact with this type of digital art that just wasn't possible before. So I think all of this is, it's, it's in motion. Now, like the format of it, I have no idea. I think we're just scratching the surface of yeah. what's possible here. And, um, you know, there's, there's a ton of problems in the space. There's, you know, straight up fraud. There's plenty of wash trading. Uh, and it's, you know, it's all at the foundation is on Ethereum, which uh, I think probably many of your listeners and, you know, I would share the view that that's, that's shaky foundation. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting going through the experience of buying one of these things. Cause what it felt like to me is that I'm holding basically uh, ether, but in a more expressive way. Right. Um, which is kind of cool, but also comes with a whole lot of risk, right? Like you're not only betting on the work of art, you're betting on the artist, you're betting on like the NFT concept 
and right. you're betting on the blockchain that it's all on. Um, yeah. And, you know, like the platform has already shifted. Yet. I don't know if you remember the, the rare peeps or rare pepes or I don't know yep. how to pronounce it. Yes, I do. Um, I remember the rare pepes yeah. very well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like, you know, some of that art's really cool. Some of the artists are great, but I don't think those rare pepes are going to be worth too much going forward because that platform has just kind of become, you know, it's become less relevant. Right. So, right. Um, my point here is that uh, I think there's a really interesting potential, but a whole lot of risk. And I think it becomes, it can become much more interesting if it becomes, if it comes to Bitcoin, because then, you know, you're not just holding Bitcoin, you're, you're, you have ways to hold Bitcoin in more expressive ways. And yep. you've been de-risked somewhat by holding it on uh, a blockchain that in my mind is much more secure. Yeah, I agree. I was talking, the first interview that I did uh, was with Samson Mo and uh, his art director, Wayne Wan Chong for, from the uh, Infinite Fleet game. You familiar with that? I'm not familiar with that one specifically. Yeah, you know who Samson Mo is? Yeah, yeah. He a guy from Blockstream, lizard, liz, lizard person, apparently going to kill us all. But no, he's actually a really nice guy. Um, but, you know, he's he's chief to, uh, chief strategy officer at Blockstream. But in, you know, in I guess in the, you know, at night, he becomes video game developer. And if you haven't checked out Infinite Fleet, it's definitely worth taking a look at. But they're okay. using the, the liquid side chain inside their... Um, their game uh, with the I was called the INF token, which is a token pegged to Bitcoin on, you know, or it's, it's pegged in a way to Bitcoin because it's through the liquid network. Now they are actually doing NFTs in a way. Um, and the yep. way that they're, you know, the way that they're approaching it is as video game, you know, items like buying a new ship, but there's also the potential for art to come in there too. One of the things that I think about a lot is you know some of the best art that i've ever seen in my entire life is in video games um mm -hmm. and like my favorite game ever um, and it took me years to to actually play it i'd heard about it but it i by the time that i played it all the way through it was already like seven years old and that's bioshock and some of the mm -hmm. art inside that game uh, the, the architecture, uh, the way that they did things is, was absolutely just brilliant. And I yep. keep thinking about the fact that I can only experience that art either by firing up the game or, uh, looking for screenshots or firing up the game and taking my own screenshots. That's the only way you're getting that art out of that game. Well, here comes NFTs. And what right. I think about that is that, you know, being able to play, you know, new games that come online, like maybe from Satoshi's games or Donner Lab, uh, the guys that are, you know, really working with Bitcoin and other video games is to be able to pull art out and you buy that as an NFT. And it's sort of kind of licensed to you, not that you own it, but it's licensed to you. And then there's the other way that goes in. And I'm thinking, you know, what you're talking about, uh, and, you know, NFT artists creating one of these things and then being able to license their art and have it appear in a video game. 
where their art yeah. is actually selected by one of the art developers or uh, art directors at a video game saying, you know, do Lucho stuff would be perfect in this room because it has this kind of architecture and they contact Lucho and he says, yeah, dude, I'll, I'll, I'll either license you these that I've got on the shelf or I'll, or I'll do you a custom piece. And then all of a sudden the artist gets paid, never had to do anything with, you know, to fly to Amsterdam or wherever these companies are and, you know, hang out with them just, and all of a sudden you can crowdsource all the art that you need and have licensing potential on all of it. So I, I don't think you're far from the truth that this is helping to create a new Renaissance here, man. Yeah, I agree. You know, at the end of the day, this is software, right? So it's, it's, right. it's essentially just programmable art. Uh, and that's why I think we're just scratching the surface at, at what's possible here. When you start getting into commercial rights and, uh, you know, exclusive content that comes with that NFT, there's just a world of possibility. And already what I think is so fascinating is already you have hundreds, if not thousands of artists all around the world that now are able to make a living off of not just selling art, but like selling art that they really wanted to make. You know, I brought up I brought up the Renaissance because I think about like, you know, some of the great artists from the Renaissance, like Leonardo da Vinci. I, and from my understanding, a lot of his money was made through commissioned work like he wasn't even you know, that wasn't even, that wasn't coming straight from the heart, uh, you know, some of these works. Right. And because we have this, you know, token model where there is ownership associated with the art now, and you can argue about like how legitimate that ownership is, but you know, as a social construct, we've kind of agreed that, okay, yes, you own this, I own that, we can trade them, whatever. And because we have these open marketplaces where we can reach an infinite number of people uh, buying and selling these um, digital art tokens, uh, you know, now an artist, if they're talented, they can create you know, the art that they want to create. And if it's good, they just need to find one buyer and these marketplaces make it possible. Uh, so to me, that's just that's an, a beautiful thing and is going to do amazing things for creatives and what's great for creatives is great for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And and what you were talking about, the, the commissioned works of people and the artists in the, you know, the, the original Renaissance, you know, those people were bounded by borders, distance. There was no telecommunications uh, letters took, you know, God only knows how long it took a letter to get from Italy to like, I don't know, you know, Germany or something like right. that. You know, now, commissions, you know, commissioned works at this point, there are no borders. Communication is instantaneous. It's going to be real interesting to see how this one rolls out. I'll tell you that, man. Yeah. I mean, we're super excited about it. And that's why we want to be pioneers and bring it to Bitcoin. We think it's a huge opportunity. Yeah, absolutely, man. So now we go from, from NFTs, let's talk about punk rock. What, what, what you what you got? Bait. What what's baking in your brain about punk rock? Yeah, this one's been on my mind. You know, I um, it's not for me. It's uh, I listened to a uh, Peter McCormick uh, podcast. He had on uh, this dude from The Clash. I think his name yeah. is um, Keith, Keith yeah. Levine. Did you listen to that? Oh, I listened. I actually had to listen to that one twice because I was had an emergency. I had to make an emergency run from panhandle of texas to southwest colorado because my sister had broken her foot 
I started at four o'clock in the afternoon to basically embark on a 10 hour drive that was going to put me somewhere in Colorado around two o'clock in the morning. And, uh, yeah, Keith was Keith and Peter were my wingmen on that particular trip. And that was a ballers interview, man. Cause that dude, that dude got it. He just understood. And I'm like, man, punk rockers, check them out. Absolutely. And he's just, he's the type of guy too, where he can just keep talking and you're like, yeah, just keep talking. And I'm listening. Whatever you got to say, like, I want to hear it. He's just such a fun guy to listen to. Um, yeah. But, but like, you know, it really resonated with me hearing him talk about it because he's talking about the punk movement, whatever. And I, I wasn't around for that, but you know, I, I did kind of come of age in like the grunge period, which had a similar like stick to the man type of vibe. Right. And when I look back on that, what was, what was really interesting is like that whole movement was broadcasted to the public through MTV, mm-hmm. right? Like all of, you know, all the music videos, all the live performances, Kurt Cobain totally strung out, flipping off the camera. Like that was all, we saw all of that. Right. And it was amazing. Um, but then I don't know what happened first, but you know, like grunge kind of ended and around the same time MTV stopped playing music videos and they started playing the real world, whatever. But it was yeah. almost, it almost feels like it was like a form of censorship and maybe uh-huh. this is just me, how I remember it. Uh, and you know, I can't think of a single counterculture movement like since then that's been widely broadcasted through the mainstream media. Uh, and, um, you know, of course, mainstream media has become much less relevant since then. But even now in social media, we have cancel culture. So like anything that's controversial, it faces some type of censorship. So coming back to Bitcoin, like Bitcoin is the ultimate counterculture movement. It's the ultimate stick to the man. But Bitcoin is not censorable. And, you know, of course, uh, most directly in its transactions, but also in its its culture and its narratives. Like we have what what is uh, what's Michael Saylor call it the, the cyber hornets, right? Like we're the decentralized pack of cyber hornets. Uh, you know, we're going to keep talking about Bitcoin. Um, yeah. You know, we, of course, we have Twitter, which is kind of a, a central point of failure. Thankfully, we have Jack on our side there, but. You know, if Twitter gets shut down, like we're going to find a way to continue talking about Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. So I feel like, you know, there's a lot of parallels there. And just like with, you know, punk rock and grunge, like the cultural movement was, was so important. And I feel like Bitcoin, along with being a uh, financial revolution, is a cultural revolution. And as part of that culture, there's, you know, there's like, physical items like i want t-shirts i want art so that i can you know represent my tribe here um i keep seeing the guy you know the guy on twitter who like just goes in the middle of the street and starts yelling bitcoin i can't oh that dude yeah (laughs) but like i've been thinking about it recently it's like i get this guy like if you're into Bitcoin, you just have this urge to start yelling Bitcoin, you know, like all of our normie friends are sick of hearing about it from us, but like, there's a strong need to express enthusiasm for Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, this is what we want to help support and promote. Yeah. You know, I, I think I get what you're saying, you know, cause you could, 
you know, back in the punk rock days and even in the grunge days, if you had something to, you know, if you, if you were feeling particularly, you know, I don't know, salty or whatever, and, you know, put on the clash and that sort of making a statement it's playing that song loud is, is in a way, not only just because you want to hear it in many other ways, it could be, you know, the old lady next door, you know, bitch me out for walking on the sidewalk, even though that's not her property. So I'm going to open my windows and play uh-huh. fuck you from whoever, you know, right. that's, yeah. you, you can make that, you can make that statement in here. Every time I make a Bitcoin transaction, I'm making a statement, not only in my trans, I'm not just transmitting value. I'm transmitting my absolute and utter disdain for all the stuff that I grew up with that was an actual lie, but was never told to me that it really was a lie because there was nobody around who believed anything, you know, anything different. They all believe the same lie. We've been lied to since before your grandmother was a baby. We've been lied to a lot longer than that probably, but you know, definitely in my time when I grew up, I grew up thinking, so much stuff. And now, through you know, once you get into Bitcoin, like I said, once that first question pops about, well, what is money? It doesn't take you long to figure out what it was and how we screwed it up. So every transaction is like me playing a song very loud for the lady next door of the clash. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And we, we need to uh, shift in to uh, something else that you put on the list, which was the psychology of buying with Bitcoin. And we kind of touched on that just a little bit. What, uh, what's your thoughts? Yeah. So my experience was, you know, I, as I kind of mentioned, I, I initially wrote off Bitcoin because I thought it would never be used for transactions, but eventually I wanted to buy some Bitcoin socks, right. From the, uh, I think it's the, the Mount, Mount socks guys. I probably right. got that wrong. No, uh, Mount socks. Mount socks. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, after I bought them, like I've never been more excited to get socks or like maybe any piece of clothing for that matter. Uh-huh. And it just it, it made me realize there there's a psychological impact of you know, spending with Bitcoin, especially for something that can only be bought with Bitcoin. Right. Uh, it made me feel like nostalgic as a kid when my mom would take me to Toys R Us once a month and I could spend five dollars on a toy. Like when I got that toy, I really valued that toy because I used like my like scarcest resource to get it. And I kind of felt the same way with these socks. Like I spent like the money that I really value to get these socks. So look, I mean, I think, um, as I kind of mentioned, I think we're a long way from using Bitcoin for everyday purchases, you know, generally like fiat goods should be bought with fiat. But I think there's, uh, there's plenty of special purchases specifically in Bitcoin culture that, you know, not only do people want to sell them for Bitcoin, but people actually appreciate buying them with Bitcoin. Um, so, yeah, that's what that's why I think that's the most interesting area for us to go after. Did you take part in the uh, Citadel 21 physical magazine uh, when they launched that? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I've got um, I've got an issue one and issue two. Yeah, it's the same thing. It, it ties back to, you know, kind of the grunge stuff, too, like. This is all, these are the cultural elements of this revolution and uh, getting these things. It just, it's just having it in your hands feels amazing. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, for me, it was, you know, getting the magazine and I don't want, you know, Hoddle and Ott and, and Katya to take this the wrong way, but getting the physical magazine was no, 
wasn't anywhere close to the rush that I had when I was sitting there with my finger on the button and then yeah. the countdown stopped and I like hit buy immediately. I logged in, you know, got in, I was already logged in, but I was like, I, I got to the, to the store page and I'm just waiting for the auction to actually start. It starts up, go there, hit buy and all their servers burnt to the ground. Because every they had one server that they had from what i understand they had one server that was handling the load and we like all the bitcoiners had spread the news so majestically for free that the response was way more than their their little server could handle so it burns to the ground we start you know we're having a good time on twitter talking about how this is, you know, it's amazing. And look at what's happening and all that kind of stuff. And then they bring three more servers plus the original one online. And I felt no more. I felt I've never felt so much joy in purchasing something, especially for 21 bucks yeah. than I did at that moment. So, cause I'll go to like, you know, not eBay, um, you know, Amazon to buy something. I don't get charged up. I don't like, I'm just going, God, I got to spend more money. Really, you know, and it's just a drag. And this, from a psychological standpoint, I kind of like spending money or spending Bitcoin, but I only do that through the LN strike so that I can convert dirty fiat immediately to, you know, Bitcoin that is then sent to the vendor. That I don't mind, but I, I don't like spending out of my cold storage. So there's that. So, yeah, yeah. there's some, some real intricacies here. Yeah, and you bring up LN Strike. I haven't been I haven't been able to use it yet. It's uh, you know not available in New York, but that takes it to the next level. You know, not right. only are you spending money that you value, but you're burning money that you don't uh, in exchange for money that you value. Again, yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. Not only are you buying something of value that you want with money that that you're excited about, and at the same time putting this lie into a brown paper bag, pouring diesel on it and lighting it on fire. There's nothing. There's a, that's a, that's a great punt. That goes back to the whole punk rock thing, honestly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so now it's the, now it's the future. So you, um, you got something about, you know, the, the future of Bitcoin and LN for more than just payments. This seems like a good place to transition to that. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was interesting when we did our first sale, we sold some face masks uh, and like going into that sale, we weren't even sure we were going to support lightning because, uh, uh -huh. you know, we saw it as like MVP, minimum viable product. We wanted to keep it as bare bones as possible, but it just so happened to be during a time when uh, fees were spiking. Actually, I think it was just after the halving. So it was late May. Uh, so fees were up. And we we're like, okay, we got to support Lightning, right? And we were we were blown away that you know, over a third of our transactions were in Lightning. Yeah. And up to that point, I had just been a passive observer of Lightning. And mm -hmm. from that moment, I was like, okay, I got to try this thing out and see what this is about. So you know, got set up on a Lightning wallet, and it was the first payment that I made. And I'm not even sure what it was for, but like that was it was just the total aha moment, like, oh, well, this is definitely the future of at least Bitcoin payments, if not, you know, much more. Um, so that kind of took me down the whole lightning rabbit hole and like <laughs> saw all the use cases that were being tested with microtransactions. 
the whole primordial soup going on there. But then, uh, you know, at some point in my research, I came across, um, it was actually Ryan Gentry's piece. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a piece for Multicoin when he was back there. And uh, I, I can't remember the name of it exactly. It, it was something like lightning as, um, you know, Web3 infrastructure. We actually wrote a blog post on it that like totally dumbed it down and made it, you know, memeified because it, it is a pretty dense document, but it just right. it totally opened the possibilities in my mind for, you know, what could be done with lightning and it goes way beyond payments. So he goes into, for example, uh, decentralized IDs. So you can use your lightning node public key as basically a, a, um, a digital identification and get all the benefits of a digital identification with that, without, you know, all of the KYC and friction associated with it. So um, this is becoming very real right now. Uh, LN Markets has um, created a really great experience uh, with their web app where, you know, you can log in either with your Jewel uh, Lightning browser wallet uh, if you're running your own node, or even uh, with you know, most other wallets at this point, you can use LNURL auth. And either way, you're just scanning a QR code and you're logged in. Boom. And not yeah. only are you logged in and you know you have access to all of your your history with that app, uh, but by default, you're making Lightning transactions, which just that just opens up so much possibility. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's one thing we're really excited about implementing. Uh, I think we're going to have it ready for V2 of our auctions. And there are a bunch of other things too. You know, um, you know, I think the um, DLCs is maybe something we can use to uh, you know, minimize the trust in re returning our collateral payments, uh, some kind of smart contract uh, on Bitcoin. Uh, there's... Um, there's these like TLV payments, which if you're familiar with, you know, anything really about Lightning, you know that payments can have a data payload attached to them. And in the most simple terms, that is text. So yep. you can actually, there's this website, tlvshop.com, I think, and they did a test run of this where they sold sticker packs. Uh, and all you did was you made a TLV payment, which is just like any other Lightning payment, and you're putting in your shipping address into the memo field of the payment. And what this enables is like, you know, your shipping address is never touching a database. Uh, and it's only being sent from, you know, sender to receiver and through the privacy of Lightning, no one else is seeing that. Like it's as private as it gets. Uh, right. So that's something we want to test out. We're super excited about, um, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff that I'm probably not thinking about, but the point is like lightning is so much more than payments. And I think a lot of the tools that it makes possible are uh, really interesting for app developers. And I think we can bring a lot of it to life with uh, our e-commerce web uh, marketplace. Well, so, you know, speaking of that, um, you know, I guess the way to, to approach this, you know, this, this question is, if the question is going to be, how are you going to deal with, um, oh, 
the changes that are going to come in the future. And let me caveat that a little bit. We're seeing this, I mean, the, the rapidity of development and releases of different things, lightning is not going to be the last. So, you know, there's going to be another second layer or, or, or it could end up being going above lightning and turn into a third layer that puts its hooks into the lightning layer. And then lightning puts its hooks into the Bitcoin main chain, as we know. So, you know, I'm not, I'm going to try very hard not to say it this way, but you know, what if something better comes along and no, I'm not talking about a shit coin guys. So give me, you know, give me a break. If you're, if you're like, you know, killing me. No, but I mean like new technologies are going to be built on, on, on Bitcoin because this ain't stop it. Yeah. You know, it's totally possible. Uh, and we are, you know, we're totally unbiased as to what we're using as long as it is based on Bitcoin. Right. My, my personal view is that, Lightning has achieved kind of platform status yeah. where, the, where there's just so much development on it at this point. And even the L3 protocols are depending on Lightning. Uh, so I have a hard time seeing Lightning going away. Uh, yeah. And, you know, part of this is also, I just believe so much in the community and the people that are working on it. Um, I think it's here to stay. And, uh, but yeah, look, there's going to be L3 uh, protocols. We're really excited about what's happening with RGB. That's going to open up, hopefully, a world of possibilities for us. And, uh, you know, all of this is just so early. We can't even imagine what's going to become possible. Right. It just It's so difficult to keep track of all the developments that are going on in the space that that's where he's not was asking the question is it must, you know, it's going to be it's already at the point and will continue to be the point that if you are, you know, in retail and you're using, you know, decided, you know, I just don't want to take fiat payments anymore. You know, the amount of research that would have to be ongoing just as we enter this space, it's like, okay, you're going to take part of this space. You're going to take Bitcoin payments. You're going to do lightning payments, buckle up because you're going to have to know almost everything that goes on. And it's impossible to know everything that goes on, even if you're not, you know, doing, you know, having to do the business part of it. So, yeah, that's why one of the reasons I was trying to kind of gauge what, you know, where you were at on, on, on that. Cause the, just the sheer amount of research that I have to do every day. And I feel like I'm falling further and further behind. It must be really scary thinking, what if something else comes out? How could we, you know, transition? How long would that take? And of course there's no way of knowing unless the technology actually presents itself. So, okay. Yeah, it's absolutely true. You know, it's, uh, it's, we're living in the primordial soup and you never know what's going to really come to life here. So you got to be ready for whatever. And that, that is really challenging for product builders like ourselves. Like so much of this is out of our control. So we right. have to be really flexible and nimble uh, in the decisions we make and the, and the moves that we make. You know, I think that's that that nimbleness, having to be nimble in the light of what we were just talking about is going to really train some next generation uh, business minds to be able to be way flexible, way more flexible than they are right now. So I think that that'll feed into second generation effects that Bitcoin has, even if Bitcoin doesn't touch the business that is built by the people that had to actually wade through this. Although I'll bet Bitcoin will probably be part of everyday life soon, but you get what I'm saying. It is Chris. It's time for shill fest. 
You got to shield your stuff, man. Is there any announcements that you want to, uh, that you've been holding back or anything you want to say about scarcity? Uh, you know, check us out on Twitter, scarce.city. You got to spell out D-O-T. Uh, check out our website, scarce.city. Um, sign up for our newsletter. We got some really big announcements on the way. The lightning auctions, it's going to be wild. <laughs> you, know, I, you never know what's going to happen until you throw something out there. And once we do, it's out of our hands. So, uh, you know, stick around and watch whether you're into it or not. It's going to be entertaining. Nice. So how do they get uh, people get in touch directly with you? You got to uh, surely, you know, wh what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is uh, C Tremount. Uh, DMs are open. DMs are also open on the Scarcity Twitter. So, you know, I'm easy to find. Feel free to hit me up, however. And that Telegram group, is there a, uh, do you want to give that one out or is that by invitation only to people that you want to come in? Uh, yeah, that one's invitation only at this gotcha. point, but Hey, if you're a Bitcoin artist and you're doing cool things, uh, let us know. We'll, uh, we'll take a look and, you know, we vote as a group to see who we, we let in. Uh, All right. So we're always uh, excited to uh, check out new artists. That sounds good, Chris. So if you are an artist out there and you want to get into this, contact the guys over at Scarcity uh, or C Tremount on Twitter um, and maybe you can get entry into the super secret club. <laughs> yeah. I hate to make it sound exclusive like that, but you no, know, we no, feel no, like no. It's... Uh, curation and, and uh, quality control is, is really important. Well, yeah. Yeah. And the same, same to be said for like, you know, the auctions that you guys choose to do, because, you know, if, you know, if you were to say, Hey man, anybody can start their own auction and we're the platform next thing, you know, sex toys are being sold or God knows <laughs> You know, got something you don't want to see is all over the screen. And it's like, oh, I don't want to do it. So, yeah, curation. You know, there's a difference between curation and censorship. And I think we can we know that I think we know the difference there. So, all right, Chris, it was uh, awesome. I enjoyed learning more about scarcity uh, yourself, your the the punk rock stories. You know, the, uh, it was it was a great discussion. And I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time, sir. Likewise, David, this has been amazing. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, absolutely. And if you ever need to announce something, hit me up. My DMs are always open. I will. Thank you. All right. See you later, Chris. All right. See you. I'd like to thank Chris again for uh, giving me a, a long a, a long interview. He was uh, very gracious with his time and I very much appreciate that. So again, Chris Tremont, thank you uh, for telling us all about scarce.city. Uh, that I'm really, I'm really excited about that. Um, I, you know, especially if it goes into, you know, either them doing it or somebody else doing it, somebody, you know, developing a full blown auction platform that uses uh, lightning auctions. Um, you know, it was kind of, tried you know brian hoffman was kind of doing a little bit like that um well not really open bazaars you know different than just a full-blown auction i think but uh he kind of screwed up by uh going the side of uh bitcoin cash and and i think then he started accepting bsv and you know that thing is almost dead um that's what you do when you tangle with you know bitcoin you, and I mean, 
I became very much not interested in using that platform at all the minute that that Brian started uh, talking about how some of these other things might be better than Bitcoin. Because I'm like, you know, you're you're not being a very good steward of this of the technology. You're you're in it for yourself. You're not in it for anybody else. That you know, and he, I'm sure that Brian doesn't believe that, but I mean. Everybody who's, you know, all these companies that have done that um, are not doing well. Y'all's dot, well, not y'all's dot org, yours dot org. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name because he's already slipping out of all of our collective memories. Um, it's dead. I mean, I, I can't even go to, like, if I go to the website for yours dot org, it's, it's completely dead. It, it's a dead gateway. doesn't go anywhere. And then he did Money Button, which is also on the rocks. And this is yet somebody else. Is it? Charles or Charles X or I can't remember. Anyway, he did the exact same thing that Brian Hoffman did, only way more vocal. <clears throat> and he also completely dropped any kind of support for Bitcoin and went uh, completely BSV. Uh, that all those projects were almost dead too. Yeah, don't don't do that. It's just that you're playing with your life anyway. So um, there's not much else going on. Again, I'm going to bring you some more interviews this week. Uh, for the week of Thanksgiving, and I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.